What's the most important television program ever made? Not the greatest or the most entertaining, but what's the most important? In this episode, we're going to look at a program that changed the lives of millions of people by making a book of factual information more emotionally interesting. A group of topics that experts didn't even think its audience could find interesting until suddenly it was. I'm Adam Morgan, and this is the Let's Make This More Interesting podcast from Eat Big Fish, a podcast looking at what we can all learn from people who made dull subjects more interesting to their audiences. And I'm talking, of course, about Sesame Street, the most widely watched children's TV program in the world in 170 countries now, and what Newsweek called the most important television program ever made. A program focused on making learning numbers and letters more interesting to preschool children a group who until then were largely thought to be too young to learn. Sesame Street was created as an innovative solution to an enormous problem. In the late 60s, in the US, low-income inner-city kids were entering school with significant skill gaps. And they weren't making up that disadvantage as they went through school. Those educational deficits persisted throughout their educational career. And there weren't any real resources to fight this. Preschools were scarce in America, as was the belief indeed that kids in that age could learn at all. But the insight from the people who started Sesame Street was actually those kids were already learning, but from TV commercials. And they thought to themselves, well, look, if TV can teach them an ad jingle, maybe it can teach them to count. And TVs, of course, are abundant, right? More households at the time in the US had TVs than bathtubs. And TVs were, as they are now, a core part of childhood kids were watching tens of hours of, of television a week. It was just that children's TV up to that point just wasn't a great product. They'd either talked down to or it sold to, or it was okay, actually, but for quite a limited audience. So their solution was to give preschool kids, particularly disadvantaged preschool kids, what they needed in the form of what they were already doing. And Sesame Workshop, the organization that created the show, paired TV writers and producers with educators and psychologists. The first time that combination ever been done to make it happen. And that group, that interesting cross-functional group, worked together to both create the show and then test the results afterwards because they wanted to understand the impact and frankly tune the impact and make the show better so it had a greater impact. And we'll hear later on from our guests exactly how they did that. They spent two years developing it. They put the heart and soul into it did get the response they wanted to initially. It was turned down by the big three networks, but of course it launched. And the results were extraordinary. For kids who were under six when it launched, watching Sesame Street had a measurable effect on what is known as grade for age status. That's to say they entered school at grade level and in elementary school, they stayed on grade level. An effect that, that the study in question concluded was particularly pronounced for boys and those living in economically disadvantaged areas. And a further study, actually, in 2001, showed that the show's positive results on reading achievement lasted through high school. It also pushed kindergarten to evolve, because before Sesame Street, kindergartens didn't teach very much, but they suddenly had these hordes of children coming in knowing letters and numbers. They had to respond. They had to, they had to start teaching because clearly it was possible. So it changed the way that people thought about what preschool kids were capable of. And I think this is very interesting for all of us because at some level, I suspect we're all underestimating what our audiences could be interested in. 
And one of the reasons I'm really interested in talking to our guest today is learning from him. How did they make actually this relatively dry set of subjects fascinating to an audience that nobody thought could be interested in this? And our guest is a is a fabulous, fabulous talent. Uh, he's Norman Stiles. He is a very celebrated writer and he started as a writer on the programme in season three. And in fact, he grew to be head writer of Sesame Street for 20 years on the programme. He was part of a team on Sesame Street that won 10 Emmys. He invented a number of characters, including The Count. And when he left Sesame Street, he went on to co-create another very awarded children's show called Between the Lions that won nine Emmys on its own. But today we're going to focus on Sesame Street and, and how the, the writers and the rest of the creatives involved made this rather dry set of topics really engaging and exciting for this group of preschoolers and see what we can learn. Because actually at the heart of it is a very simple idea, a very simple, not formula, but, but way of thinking about what they needed to do that it seems to me is actually relevant to a much broader group of us. And then for those of you that either love Sesame Street or just love Norman talking about the wonderful things that he did and working with the puppeteers, there's bonus material of the rest of the conversation with Norman and just listening to um, him talk very entertainingly about the brilliant, brilliant thing that they created. So let's meet Norman. Norman, an enormous pleasure to be spending some time with you. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. That's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Tell us a little bit about what Sesame Street was trying to do. There's a, a story that... Uh, Joan Cooney, who, who had the idea, along with um, Lloyd Morissette, another person who she met at a party, and uh, he said that his grandchild uh, was watching the test patterns on the television. <laughs> <laughs> and she, he thought, well, instead of a test pattern, uh, <laughs> let's see if we could, do you think we could do something? And she said, well, you know, uh, yes, you know, and she had been a, I think she had been a producer at PBS uh, or something like that. But anyway, one of the stories that she tells is that um, there was a commercial on television for a product called Rolaids, R-O-L-A-I-D-S. And the commercial said, how do you spell relief? R-O-L-A-I-D-S. And there were people who thought that's the way you spell relief. <laughs> <laughs> the word relief. <laughs> and so, um, for good or for evil, television can teach things. <laughs> 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 As it does to this day. Um, and uh, the more people became aware of its power... I mean, you come out of this area yourself, yeah. you know, in advertising, and um, you can make people believe things. And uh, uh, believing is learning, you know, it's all part of the same kind of thing. The genius was John Stone, who was the really the prime, the prime creative force behind uh, the creation of the street itself. Uh -huh. And his idea, which came after he watched a documentary on uh, urban life, was to set the um, show on an urban street. Huh. Most children's shows up to that point, they took you to a fantasy land. 
a tree house, you know, mm. whatever it was, Cloudland mm. or, you know, um, Bubblegum Village, uh, you know, whatever. Something that was a little uh, fairy tale ish in yep. a way. His idea was to bring the fantasy elements to the street, which would evoke in the children who were watching this idea that, wow, these, this is where I live, and here's this big yellow bird in the same kind of place where I live. Uh-huh. So um, it did take them someplace, but it grounded them in, in some way in a, in a reality that was very different, I think, uh, for the time. Ernie and Bert live in an apartment. You know, bed. It's not a cutesy place. It's an apartment. It's not pastels. And as I understand it, it was it was kind of an inner city street, wasn't it? It was a very particular kind of socio-demographic angle on it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. It was the first time that you had a um, an integrated cast. Yeah. On television. Yeah. yeah. When Sesame Street first started, there were no puppets on the street. <laughs> Really? Yeah. So when did they arrive? Oh, well, when they realized the kids were watching. <laughs> <laughs> they did so some they, test they, they tested it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, they tested it, and they realized they needed to do something. And that's when they added Big Bird and Oscar. Right, as the first two. On the street. Now, they had had the puppet characters, you know. Uh, I believe they had most of them um, for the inserts. But how important was that social sense of purpose in the day-to-day of the writing? Oh, role? it 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 was huge. It at the time, I would say that everybody who worked on that show, the stagehands, the camera people, the um, makeup people, everybody believed that we were trying to do something to accomplish the mission, which was to help prepare kids who had, didn't have an enriched home life between the ages of zero to three, to do as much remedial work as we could to prepare them for school, because they were arriving in school not really ready. And that was one part. The other part, there's no question that we thought, and John Stone liked this, and this is also different than what they do now. We show, we don't tell. We had a a world, a, a street in New York City that showed people getting along with each other, respecting each other, even though they live in a, one lives in a garbage can. Um, his space is respected and we understand his different point of view we have people of different colors um we have different ethnic backgrounds we have some people who are disabled some people and nobody talks about the negatives that we see in the world and how the world should be we just were and this was going to be an example of the way we thought a world did at least this was very American at the time. This was 
at a time when the war on poverty was going on, there was a um, a feeling, I think, in the country that doing something to help this serious problem of uh, having a huge segments of our uh, society not participating in the country, in the society, and maximizing opportunity and helping solve poverty. We actually thought we could do it all. <laughs> we actually were so idealistic. But then it was an idealistic time. But I know I I thought, I, I'm this is great. I'm happy to be here and I'm happy to be doing this. I'm thrilled that I'm doing something that is creative and fun, but also important. I really thought it was important. And clearly there's a lot of evidence that it was. And there was a very full and clear curriculum, wasn't there? Uh, there was a man named Jerry, Jerry Lesser from Harvard who wrote that curriculum, that uh, statement of uh, instructional goals with other people, but he was the guiding force. And he loved comedy and he loved, he thought the whole idea of entertaining children and teaching them was a good idea and that the people who knew about entertaining and comedy should be in charge of that. <laughs> and that the people who understood the curriculum were really important, but they were advisors. So the original um, uh, idea was that, that, so that that was one of them. The other is that the comedy should be on two levels uh, because we uh, it was thought that if parents watched with their children, it would be an engaging experience for the family. That's number one. But also, they could have a conversation about it, and kids would learn a little bit more uh, because it was an ongoing conversation beyond just the um, hour-long television show. And we've become more used to that now, haven't we? But that must have been absolutely groundbreaking at the time. And, and tell us a bit more about how, as a writer, you came across the Statement of Instructional Goals. Once I got there, um, there was this document that broke down every area of teaching as if it were an outline, you know, those typical outlines you see in schools and, you know, whatever. So it would say, we'd have a whole section on um, numeracy, let's let's call it. I don't yep. know if that's what they called it then. Yep. And so you have to, if you're going to write a segment that's... Uh, uh, a minute long, what are you going to teach in that minute? And so this outline broke down the various things that they wanted children to know who are three to five years old. And the uh, title of this was the Statement of Instructional Goals. And that's exactly what it was. Each item was a go was a goal. What do we want the child to know after they watch this segment. And as a writer, you had to follow that for each segment yes. you read. No, there was no option. You couldn't say, I've got a better idea. Let's do it like no, this. No, no. This is what they need to know. So the uh, objective of each segment was clear. There's another thing that goes along with that, which is now they can test it. They can see if the child knows this. All right. It's very specific. And this objective 
being as clear as it was made it, in a sense, very easy. <laughs> really, right. To know what you're going to write about. <laughs> now, you know, the question is, well, how do you make that funny? Yeah. <laughs> or interesting. And part of uh, the genius of Sesame Street at the time was that the characters were learners. Ah, okay. Right. They were learners themselves. They were learners, you know. Now, not all of them. The Count is not a learner. True, right. Yeah. Right. Not, not all the segments were the, the um, characters learning something, but they were all involved... All of them were involved in little dramas that involved somehow this curriculum goal. So is that how you thought of them? You thought, right, I've got two minutes to this curriculum goal. I'm gonna, I need to create a little drama around. Yes. Yeah. A, 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 little, a little comic drama. A little comic yes, drama. Yes, yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, comedy is, you know, there's something going on that the characters care about and they want, they want something or, you know, just mm -hmm. like any... Dramatic or uh, uh, dramatic comedy—it's no different than anything else that uh, people would write. Where uh, if if your character doesn't want something, well, then they're just standing there and they're just talking <laughs> to each other, you know. Yeah. And if they don't really want it or care about it or there isn't some emotion involved in it, well, you're not going to care about it either. So the, the most effective, I think, uh, pieces that we we did, the character is either an obsessive character who always wants the same thing, or with uh, uh, Grover uh, wanting to teach uh, near and far. Now here he's a teacher. He's showing what near and far is, but he really wants you to know it. <laughs> And he's willing to go to extreme lengths to make sure you know it, including exhausting himself. What's the role of comedy in this? I mean, clearly integral, but why is comedy important? Why couldn't you just do a little drama that wasn't funny? Well, kids love to laugh. We all love to laugh. Mm -hmm. Laughter, it's just, it's you want, you want them to be enjoying themselves. And this is, the, the learning in this particular case, is part of the experience. Mm. We always would say if it's seamless, the, the integration of the lesson and the scene and the comedy and the laughing is seamless. Yeah. I mean, a segment that I wrote <clears throat> was for the Count and Ernie. And... Again, it was, of course, it's the Count, so we're going to do enumeration. And the Count hires Ernie to answer his telephone. And Ernie says in his way, well, that's going to, you know, it'll be easy, Count. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it won't, Ernie. I trust me, it will not be easy. <laughs> so it's all right. So, all right. So the phone rings. And Ernie heads for the phone. And the cat says, one ring. And he stands in Ernie's way so he can't get to the phone. And the phone rings again. He says, that's two rings. And Ernie tries to get to the phone again and he can't get to the phone. Finally, he gets to seven. 
<laughs> and he finally beats him. Ernie finally beats the count to the telephone, and he picks it up, and there's a dial tone. <laughs> and he says, they hung up. He says, I told you it wouldn't be easy. <laughs> so <laughs> everybody wants something in that <laughs> in the process. And so uh, without the counting, without the count, without the lesson, it's all integrated. It's all part of that little drama. And uh, you're not saying, okay, now I'm going to teach you how to count seven telephone rings. <laughs> and I'm not teaching you that when you reach seven, you get, that's the number. You, it's all part of that little drama. This is fascinating. So you've got to produce a very specific piece of content with a very specific kind of cadence of instruction. It's got to be funny. It's got to be a little drama with the characters wanting something. It's got to work on two different levels. I mean... Clearly, they look effortless, but that's quite difficult to do. That's quite a lot of complexity, actually, to simplify down. What did you find hardest when you first arrived? So you, you start writing. You've obviously done a few bits as a, as a kind of an audition, as it were. But when you started writing, what was the bit you found hardest about producing these little kind of vignettes? Well, you know, finding these moments of drama. Was it? Right. That was the hardest part, you know. But one of the things that we did do often was parodies and things like that, which were made it a little bit easier because once you you hit on the idea of a parody, and if you did it right, it didn't matter whether the kids understood the original. Yeah, yeah. But the parents would enjoy it, so those were um, easier to do. And I know you've talked in the past about the importance of the talent of the puppet makers in the creative process, and of course the puppeteers themselves. How much of the show's success was up to them? Oh, this is a question. Look, the the, the puppeteers, there would be no, <laughs> there'd be no count, there'd be no cookie monster, there'd be <laughs> without the puppeteers. I mean, the, the performers, you know, there was a, a, the head writer before I was head writer was Jeff Moss. And he was one of the original writers. And Jeff Moss wrote the first Cookie Monster script. Now, if Frank Oz hadn't been Cookie Monster, what might that have been? It could have been a British chap. <laughs> Terrible. You yeah. know? Cookie. <laughs> you know? What, you know, it might have, who knows what it would have been. I got a cookie. It, would have, it just would not have been the same. Now, maybe there was somebody who would be brilliant and do it a different way. It would have been great. But without Frank, there's no Cookie Monster. So, so was it, were they, were the puppeteers and Jim Henson simply a collection of geniuses or was there some commonality in them that you saw that, you know, Jim, Jim Henson was like Frank in this regard or that regard? I mean, what, what did they have in common other than their brilliance? They were very silly. <laughs> <laughs> they loved. To, they just loved to play around, and you know, um, the commonality. There were so many things that were common. Their desire for perfection in the performance of the characters, with all the mayhem, you know, that they created. The the way they manipulated those puppets was so brilliant. Um, with the slightest movement, they could bring a moment to life. Uh, 
they were the characters as they performed them. You know, as uh, any actor who's a great actor is that character that they're performing, and you just totally believe it. And um, here are these, you know, puppets. They're just made out of fabric. And um, they made you believe they were real, uh, that they lived, that they were in somehow flesh and blood in some way. They made they made they made these moments real. All of them, all you know, they were, they were just great, and um, there would would have been no Cookie Monster. There would have been no Cal. There would have been no Grover. You know. You know, you can write the funniest scripts in the world, and if the actors don't bring them to life, and did they did they always stick faithfully to the script, or did they riff a little bit to bring other things to it? Um, no, they were pretty much would stick to the script because it had to teach something. They were they were systematically constructed in you know in a way, and you couldn't veer off too much, or you might hurt the curriculum that was involved in it. But within saying the words, the I mean, often, you know, they would just go off in the middle of things. They, it wasn't as if they changed the script, but they expanded the moments and made them so much more than you could ever, I could ever imagine in my own head. <laughs> Clearly, you were aiming at preschool kids, but a lot of what you discovered and did so well little character-driven dramas um, that are funny with um, sort of something apparently dull embedded in, in a short span but made more interesting and entertaining. Do you think that has a broader application in the world at the moment? I mean, just in terms of teaching generally, for instance. I mean, do, do you think there are lessons that actually we could expand more broadly around us? Um, the answer is yes. It also depends on the format you're going to choose as to how specific and how my, um, um, macular you can be, how, how you can break things down. You know, we were breaking things down into small units. Because of the attention span of the child? Well, no, because you have to teach something. Okay. You know, we can't teach everything about the letter A in 20. So we have to know what is I it think, about yeah. the letter A. So if we're going to go down, try to teach um, something about uh, conflict resolution, for example, which we did try to teach or cooperation, you have to break it down and you have to decide uh, if you're going to try to tackle the entire subject of something like that, like conflict resolution for adults. I mean, there's so many little things in it, and how do you construct a, a narrative about that? I mean, it can be done, but you would really have to dedicate, you know, a lot of time to developing the statement of instructional goals. You would, but your point about breaking it down into small bits—that's got to be true. I think of everything really, isn't and it? And it's very—it's very difficult, uh, you know, to do that, and in some subject areas, maybe not appropriate. I don't know. And looking back on it, what are you most proud of? Because, you know, you've had lots of plaudits about, and it was measurable effects on people's educational attainment you know, all the way through to their late teens, I think. I mean, it, it carried with them that benefit that you gave them. What are you most proud about in all of that? 
I hope that I was part of something that had a positive impact on kids who needed to have that positive impact on their lives and that it helped them in some way um, achieve a better life for themselves, feel better about themselves, uh, have something good in their childhood, made them laugh, all of that. Uh, so, Norman, I'm going to ask you one last question, which is um, uh, based on everything you know uh, from working on Sesame Street and Between the Lions on how to make a dull subject more interesting. Whoever's speaking, the narrator, the character, that person has to really, really love the subject, express that love, be excited about it, that person needs to articulate in some way and show what it is about that subject that's so exciting, so interesting, so funny, so whatever it is, why is this individual so touched by the subject? And this person, this message has to be directed at an individual it can't be directed to a large audience because you can't speak to a large audience. You can't connect to a large audience. You can only connect to one person at a time. So connect to one person. Be talking to one person. Norman, that's wonderful. Thank you very much indeed. I've really loved the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you got what you need. So when we started the podcast, this, this exploration of how to make things more interesting... I wondered whether, going through all the interviews, what we'd arrive at is one overarching model of how to make anything more interesting, or a group of different usable toolboxes. And in fact, of course, what we're starting to see is a mixture of both. We are starting to see some common themes emerge, aren't we? So the idea of speaking to one person that Norman talks about echoes what we heard from Ross Buchanan. So there are some general themes, but also two particular things that struck me here. The first really is this, this thing that we talked about right at the beginning, which is, what is it we are assuming that we cannot get our audience interested in? What is it we're assuming we cannot get our audience to, to learn and be engaged with? And the, and the second kind of particular area of focus, I think, that we can look at here is Norman's articulation of the heart of Sesame Street as being little dramas and how at the heart of that little drama is somebody who wants something. And how unless they want that really badly, all you have is a scene with two people talking. And there are, of course, a group of brands who really want something. And one of the striking things about great challenger brands is how obviously they really want that something. We know what Tony's Chocolonely wants. We know what Who Gives a Crap wants. Backmarket is very clear about its desire to, to blow up the whole obsession with the shiny and new and get us to buy recycled materials more, recycled phones, recycled iPads, recycled computers. And they're all impatient in that wanting. And it's that combination of wanting and impatience that inevitably leads them to create a series of little dramas that becomes the kind of marketing agenda and the stuff that kind of illuminates, I suppose, the otherwise dull and drab marketing landscape around us. Whereas conversely, I've got no idea what Head & Shoulders wants, for instance, other than to sell me shampoo. 
And it struck me then that purpose, whether you love it or loathe it, is really a statement of what your business most wants. What really says it most wants. And that's surely one of the reasons why any of us taking a binary position on whether purpose really works or whether all of it is shit is nonsense. For those businesses that say they really want something and really pursue that impatiently and create the little dramas that bring it to life internally and externally, purpose is very powerful. But if you say you want something, your purpose, and it turns out you don't really want it and there is no impatience in there, you're not going to get any little dramas and it's not going to be powerful or effective. So let's leave this bit of the podcast with three provocations, I suppose, about what we could do tomorrow, questions we could ask ourselves tomorrow, perhaps, to make our brand more interesting. The first question is this, what does our brand want? Was it badly want? Are we clear about that? Is that a question we've asked ourselves before? Secondly, why is our brand impatient to get it? Not just wants it in a kind of passive kind of way, why is it impatient to get to it? And third, if we know what it wants, we know why it's impatient to get it, what's the little drama that inevitably flows from that? This has been the Let's Make This More Interesting podcast from Eat Big Fish. Thank you for listening. And instead of leaving you here, if you do have some more time, I'm going to return you to the rest of the conversation I had with Norman, which, while not as focused perhaps on making things more interesting, is still as rich and as fascinating, as wonderfully told in its own way, as you'd expect from Norman. Here we go. So, so let's let's fast forward a bit. So you're now head of the writing team, which you were for, I think, 20 years or so. So you're now bringing young writers on, right, and telling them. So so how did you, did you brief them any differently from the way you were briefed? How did you help them understand how to make learning interesting? Um, the main thing was to have people that understood the voices, how they spoke, the dialogue, and be able to create these little dramas, you know, and... and the writers would come in, and they come in with uh, often with things that we never thought of before. You know, they, you know, everybody, <laughs> and it, it, um, I would just have to say, well, I don't think the character, as the character exists now, that's not in character for that character. You know, he wouldn't say it that way. It wouldn't do that particular thing. Um, but. Um, an, an example is um, there's a writer named uh, Luis Santiero. He was from Cuba originally. He came here when he was 12. And um, he had come to us and he had had a lot of experience. He wrote the first uh, Spanish language sitcom about a uh, family from Cuba and all this. Well, sorry if I'm, I'm just uh, chewing some ice. <laughs> uh, in a discussion, and I don't remember exactly whether he had come up with a script first or how it came about, but Elmo, up to that point, had been this just incredibly positive character, always happy, nothing ever, you know, never had a problem. And we somehow, either together or he brought in part of the idea, whatever, we had this discussion. And he finally wrote this script. And it was all about how Elmo was afraid of clowns. And it's one of my favorite scripts that was written because it so broke with 
how we knew who Elmo was and what it, the way it, it went about this. And here, so here's this little drama. Now, what are we going to teach with that little drama? Well, we had, it was on the street, so it was a few segments. And each segment taught something different. One thing, we wanted kids to be able to identify fear. What is fear? <laughs> that was one of our goals. Well, but that stands there right away. I'm always afraid. We'll be able to identify that. And what we did was we had uh, Telly uh, Monster, who was uh, a friend of Elmo's, and they hung out together. Telly's a very different kind of <laughs> character. Um, and uh, he dresses up like a clown. And he's dressed as a clown because, you know, he thinks it's funny or whatever. And... Uh, Elmo comes, comes in and ah, he's afraid, you know. All right. So now the next thing they do is say, all right. Uh, he comes back. He said, okay, there's just Telly with no clown nose on him, nothing on him. He says, are you afraid of Telly? No, Telly's my friend. No, no, no. All right. We're going to put funny uh, hair on his head. Body parts is one of our goals, his head. All right, all right. We're going to put on a funny nose. Put a funny nose on his body parts. We're going to put on this, you know, this around his neck and he goes, ah, clown, and he runs away. So <laughs> we ended up finding ways of using that in that drama to teach other things. Um, That's very clever. But the, but the idea about the characteristic came first and then the... And what yes, you could often, do with it came afterwards. Yeah, often we would go that way, which is a little different, uh, I think, um, than um, <clears throat> the way commercials work, where you're given something. You don't say, okay, I have this idea for how to teach, <laughs> for how to sell a Buick and, uh, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and do it. Buick yeah. has the idea that they want to sell it and they come to you. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe we should do it your way. Maybe, maybe so. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the way, uh, often um, when we were doing street segments, this is really on the street, where we had to have a series of segments in these sort of mini plot line kinds of things. And what we would do is we would come up with a dramatic premise first. <clears throat> of some kind, and then uh, search for ways, look at our curriculum and say, okay, in this little uh, thing that's going on now, what can we teach? In my old profession, advertising, um, there's a very famous saying by David Ogilvy, who was obviously one of the great creative people. Um, he said, give me the freedom of a tight brief. His point was, I need some constraints. Um, Oh, exactly. Yes. You feel the same. So you feel actually. Oh, there's no, there's absolutely no question. If you, uh, especially, you know, Chris Surfle, you know, if I, if we didn't have this curriculum, what would we do? Okay. <laughs> I'd have nothing to do. Now, what the the reality is in the world, most writers, most producers, do not want that. 
they just, it's too hard. But, and they saw how it's taking away their freedom, you know? Well, all right, we'll go off and write a novel. But if you're going to do something serious on television, really, what are you doing it for? <laughs> you know, everything that's, anything you do in entertainment, I don't care if it's a play or, you know, a movie or whatever, everything has messages in it. You're, t you're teaching people something, <laughs> whether you've wanted to or not, you know, even if even the setting you choose, you're telling something about that place. So uh, uh, it's I mean, usually it's it's good versus evil and good wins. Well, how many times are you going to teach that? Did each character have a kind of their own version of here's the backstory and here's how Grover is and here how he is? <laughs> you know, it's it's really it's really interesting because I came to this as a real novice. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was lucky to arrive when the characters were really pretty much fully formed, the basic characters. Um, and that means uh, Cookie Monster and Grover and um, uh, Big Bird and Oscar. And, you know, all of them, basically the genius of the characters had been basically established. And there was no, you know... Where did they come from? You know, they <laughs> arrived from, you know, another planet. Or where, it's, it, it was none of that. They just existed. Um, and for me, um, and I, I assume this is true for many of the writers, um, what, when you hear the voice, you know who that character is. At least that was true for me. I could hear them speak. As you were writing, you could hear them speak. Oh yes, you know they. You know you. They tell you, you know. You put them in a situation, and they tell you. They really, they 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 propelled your scene forward in a sense with you. Oh, there's no question. Without them, without them, there would be no scene. So, so tell us, tell us about the count. Where did the count come from? Well. That was uh, was that a eureka moment, or was that solving a sort of strategic problem? If you like, no, and... that was a eureka moment. Um, I don't remember. Nobody said you know come up with a character, but the uh, the character of uh, Count Dracula, that um, Bela Lugosi, yes, that character. Somehow, just the word counting and count, and. Count Dracula. Well, I said, well, wait a minute. There has to be something there. Um, and my first thought was, uh, instead of, I want to bite your neck, I want to count your neck. One neck. <laughs> and so that sort of was the start. But I really didn't know at the time, at that in that moment, what was it that, he was going to be about besides counting. And um, in the beginning, the first couple of years of the show and the first couple of years that I was there, um, there was a woman named Sharon Lerner who was hired as a, a curriculum coordinator. And her job was to translate between writers and the research department, the, the educators, and vice versa to work, to smooth things over 
if it needed smoothing over, and also to help the writers understand some of the curriculum items. Because sometimes it was hard, you know, it wasn't simple. If you say phonemic awareness, well, what is that? <laughs> to all these folk, we have to be aware of the phonemes. <laughs> Those phonemes are coming. Oh, uh, but uh, so we had to know what that was. And she would be able to explain it. And sometimes she would have to help us maybe change something so that it really did teach, you know, that we might want to emphasize something a little bit more in that little drama to, to really help it teach what we said it was going to teach. Um, or she might have to explain to the, the other side, well, we can't do it more because it won't be funny. You know, so it was a good, she was really important. And this I can remember, I was in my office and I said, I had this idea for the the Count, Count Dracula. And she said, enumeration. And that was it. Then I knew. What his role was. What his role was that he was going to be doing this. Uh, now, he could teach being happy. I'm happy when I count. I mean, he could teach Lots of things besides counting, depending on the circumstance that you were in. But that was his main thing, was to teach enumeration. And then you only have to find, you know, the little, the moments and, and how to make that obsession in the same way that the Cookie Monster's obsession ends up teaching many things. Um, you know, it works in a variety of ways but that notion of obsession was important to those characters yeah I tried otherwise, you, I tried otherwise you don't have the drama yeah I tried it once with a character named Dina whose obsession was playing and for whatever reason it just didn't work <laughs> so this obsession is that kind of it's your point about the character really wants something right and they have to dramatically want it for, right, the, for right. that thing to work. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think some people are naturally funny and can naturally write comedy and others can't? Or do you think, actually, could you sit down and teach me to write comedy? No, I think you have to have a comedic point of view. And what is that point of view? What What is the secret of comedy for you? Um, to be creative, for me, what, what I see it as is seeing things that, didn't go together until you'd realize they go together. To help people see things in a different way, to see a circumstance in a different way, to you're you're really playing with um, perception and understanding and all that. Creativity is basically is what it is. Um, and with comedy, it's the same thing, but it's more. Ex uh, uh, you're trying to. Um, Make it happen fast. <laughs> See, a laugh comes fast. Uh, you know, it's, you're putting things together very quickly. You know, the observation is fast. What what other kinds of new, important questions did the show ask and help kids answer for themselves that hadn't been asked or answered before? When when we uh, made the decision, for example, to um, 
do a show about death. It was triggered by the death of one of our cat, one of the you know the actors who played Mister Hooper, and we we had an opportunity at that time to deal with this subject of death. But as everything that we did on the show, Sesame Street, it was what do the children need to know, what can they know, and what can they absorb, what's age appropriate. It's not what do we think yeah. they should know, yeah. <laughs> but what do they need to know. And in order to um, figure that out, there were people who uh, understood child development, child psychology, and they advised us on, one, is there anything, what are the things that they might need to know? Is there, are there things? Or do they not need to know anything at this age? And uh, they eventually came up with, if I remember them, they were very simple. When someone dies, they don't come back. They're gone. Um, you will be taken care of. If it was someone close to you and they did things for you, somebody else will take over. Um, and it's okay to feel whatever you feel or not feel, right? You can be sad, whatever. You can be angry, whatever you Those were the things. There was one thing they said, don't say. Don't say, Mr. Hooper went to the hospital and he died. Because someday one of these children might have a parent who's going to the hospital. And they will, they might assume that when you go to the hospital, you die. Uh, don't say he went to Florida. Don't, you know, just, or either don't do it at all and just uh, have somebody take over or deal with it the way we said. So um, essentially when I wrote the script, those are the questions I answered. I had Big Bird ask those questions and those questions were answered. Uh, and how is, it re how is it received when it went out as a program? When it went out into the world, uh, it was received very well. I mean, I think people uh, were grateful that it was there, that um, they thought it was helpful for them. Um, it's not something that they rerun, but it's available to uh, people to show their children if they f feel the need. Um, I don't know. Uh, there was a book that came out that basically was a um, to retelling of that segment. You know, the interesting thing about uh, that, it was actually an entire show, you see. There was one segment in which Big Bird discusses, finds out that Hooper, uh, not that he finds out, but he remembers and he learns all of this. It was a segment that came before this that nobody ever mentions. Um, if you remember uh, in that segment, Big Bird's finally gets to the point where he's really frustrated and he says, why does it have to be like this way? Everything was fine the way it was. And Gordon says, it has to be this way because 
Just because, because. Yes. Well, there's an earlier segment where um, <clears throat> Big Bird is just doing one of the things he normally does. He does doing something silly. He's walking with his head between his legs. Back, you know, where it basically is walking backwards, but because he's a puppeteer, he can take the head and put it between his legs. And Gordon comes to him and says, what are you doing? He says, oh, I'm just doing this. Well, why are you doing this? He says, I, I don't know, because. It's just because? Yeah, just because. And then he says, you know what I'm going to do now? And he does something else kind of silly. In here. So if you don't have that yeah. segment. Framing it. It doesn't have the context that Gordon was bringing back something that Big Bird yeah. would understand yeah. personally. Yeah. And you said right at the beginning, believing is learning. T tell me a bit more about that. What do you meant by that? I was very intrigued by that. Uh, you know, if you're not in the moment, if you're somewhere else, you know, belief takes you, You, it's both, it's a curse. It's what human beings do. Uh -huh. We believe things, <laughs> you know, and uh, once you believe something, you know it. There's something that it's a, it's inside you, you know. Um, you believe your mother loves you, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, but belief is, is so uh, much a part of being a human being um, and it can, for, for good, for bad and good, you know, um, why do we watch something? You will, the willing suspension yeah. of disbelief is what they talk about. So you're believing in the moment, you're, you're invested in it, you're, you know, emotionally connected. But you, but you, you made the point earlier on that kids believed in the characters, right? They were real characters. Then. Oh yeah, well, you know, kids, kids in fantasy worlds, they believe in them. Um, uh, but listen, hey, listen, we believed in it too. <laughs> when you're writing it, yeah. you have to believe yeah. it. Yeah, you can't write it. From outside, you have to write it from inside. You have, it's a real world. If this is Sesame Street was as real to us as um, as any place was. Let's make this more interesting as a podcast from Eat Big Fish. I'm Adam Morgan. Thank you to Ruth, my editor, and Ross, my producer. And join us next time when we'll be talking to Addison Brown, the science teacher I wish I had when I was at school. See you then. <laughs>